Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. My name is Anthony and I'm your host. As we wrap up season four, I have a number of excerpts of several conversations. Jen Doolittle Wilson is back, Arthur Jamfa, Elio Garcia, comic Steve Osborne. But before any of that, here is Dr. Chad Carmichael. One other thing I want to bring up, um, you know, Ned is so high-minded about about killing a 14-year-old girl, but, like, you never get any sense that he's wringing his hands over what happened to that butcher's boy. No, you don't. Um, yeah. I, I, do you think that there's a class thing, class difference? Maybe. I, I guess... Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's the only explanation I can think of. It doesn't really ring true to me. It's almost like maybe Ned's honor, his concern with the honor, is not as sincere as it as it may seem. Here's yeah, yeah that could be the case. Uh, yeah, like so. So more than in other words, more than class, it's like this. It's like people like Robert, people in the small council, will see Ned as this kind of frustrating honor bound guy if he stands up against the, the plot to kill Daenerys. But that's not going to be their reaction if he's carrying on about the murdered butcher's boy. Well, it's not a pre, it wasn't a premeditated thing with the butcher's boy. It was sort of like... Yeah. That's true. The that's hound, true, the hound, the hound is like... The hound is a mad dog, and he ran down the butcher's boy, and you know what? Mad dogs do what mad dogs do. But but the hound was never never disciplined for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're totally right. You're totally right that Ned needs to show more indignation about what happened to Micah. And I think it's not it's not so much class as it is. He wants them to think that he's a frustrating, honor bound guy. And maybe he doesn't like the way that they would think of him if he stood up for the butcher's boy. Hmm. I don't know what they would think about him. They would probably think he was crazy or something. Right. Hmm. I just. They wouldn't think, oh, Ned, he's so frustrating. He's so honor bound if he was standing up for the butcher boy, butcher's boy. Right. They'd be like, why do you care about about him? Well, I mean, it is it is Ned's job. Ned's job is to care about the the people of the north. Yeah. Right. So part of his job is to make sure that uh, innocent children don't just get run down by uh, rogue soldiers or whatever. But here's the thing about this is that um, the story is that Micah attacked the, the crown prince. Yeah. And so they sent a killer to go bring him back, and he right. brought him back dead. And it's, it's, it's a crazy situation, but no one sort of sat in a high council room and, and planned Micah's death. But Ned knows that's not what happened. Well, I know. I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I think maybe we're on the same page here. I think that yeah, right. 
I think that Ned should be sort of indignant about the butcher's boy and say, "Hey, he was one of mine. He was one. He was my daughter's friend. And why did right. he have to die? And you know all that business." But he doesn't do it, and it's it's a curious situation. Yeah, yeah, and I think it has something to do with Ned's display of indignation and concern with honor being less genuine than he would like us to think. It is. But it is somewhat different than the situation with Danny. You know, she's a she's a fourteen year old girl. And she's across the sea. Yeah. And she may be pregnant, but she really does not pose any threat. Right. He just thinks that the planning an assassination is is repugnant. Right. So it's, it, it is a different sort of context than Micah's context. I wonder how he would have reacted if Robert had said, bring me the butcher's bo- butcher boy's head. He would have. I think he would have protested, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Um, hmm. but then he just lets it go when it happens. It's just, it's weird. It's weird. It's not as weird as Ned caring so little about serial killers like Gregor Clegane. Yeah. He's clearly a serial killer and Ned just kind of shrugs it off. Ned shrugs it off. Nothing to be done about it. (laughs) Hey, let me ask you a question, um, that I've, I don't think I've asked you before. Okay. You've been a good sport about covering these Ned chapters for me. In a way, I don't think any, many other people could do because I don't. I just don't think people get Ned in the way that you seem to get Ned. Yeah. Or you're willing to defend Ned from time to time. Yeah. When others wouldn't. Um, but um, if there are, if there was another character, another another POV chapter character. Sure. That you would like to cover. Yeah. And sort of break out of the Ned pigeonhole. Yeah. Who would it be? I mean, you know, my favorites are the same favorites everybody has, I guess, Tyrion and Arya. Not necessarily. Um You you're a little you're you're kind of an odd bird when it comes to this kind of stuff. Everybody loves Tyrion and Arya. If you ask everybody's favorite, the, ha, almost half of the people are gonna be Tyrion. You know, and it's it's funny Arya. to me what response I get. I I get Danny a lot. Uh-huh. And I do get Arya and I do get Tyrion. And those are the those are very common, right? Yeah. Every now and again I'll get Sansa. I've I've talked to two people on this podcast that they said no, Sansa, she's the one that I love. That's crazy. <laughs> she's I I I feel sorry for Sansa. I don't like her. <laughs> I don't like Bran very much. He seems like kind of kind of a little jerk. Um, I guess, uh, Catelyn, I don't really like, she seems kind of, kind of dumb to me in an annoying way. Oh, you are so wrong about this. I know you have a thing about Catelyn. I'm I'm a little bit shocked. I I like John and Danny both. I like the characters a lot, a lot. I like them a lot. I think you would be a good John coverage guy. Sure. I could do that. I, I'm more interested in what's going on in the Seven Kingdoms and in King's Landing. So I always, when it goes to Danny or John, I always feel like I'm getting taken out of the action a little bit. But I think you'd be a good John guy. I would do any, I would really do any chapter. So you can name the chapter and I'd be happy to. Well, you're absolutely not doing a Catelyn chapter. You've shown me your ass on that one, Chad. Right, right. I think that she... Um, just don't, just don't. Why don't you just stop right there? Her impulsive, vengeful, 
like um, maternal instincts drive everything she does. And it really causes a lot of ruin. That doesn't mean she's dumb. Well, it just means she's, I mean, maybe there's an intellect there that's just not engaged, but. Um, let me tell you about, he... let me tell you about Catelyn Stark. Mm-hmm. She takes Tyrion and she tells everyone in the room that she's going to take him to Winterfell. Instead, she takes him to the Eyrie. And when Tyrion realizes what she's done, he says that she has outthought him at every turn. Uh Tyrion is supposed to be the smartest person in the book. And from Tyrion's perspective, Catelyn Stark has outwitted him. Yeah. So I do think that um, that you're wrong. I don't think it makes you a bad person. <laughs> you can be wrong and you know still be a good person. She made a good move in tricking Tyrion, but and that's in the context that she's wrongly imprisoned the guy. He's like one of the better people in the situation. He probably would have helped her. Yeah, she's being played by um, Littlefinger for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I hate Littlefinger. That's why I dislike Catelyn is because she's played by Littlefinger throughout, and I don't like it. I don't like him, and she, and I fr- I'm frustrated with her that she goes with that, and it seems like she's driven too much by her desire for revenge and her self-concern. Wrong. Well. Totally wrong. There you go. There you go. Thanks again, man. All right. Uh, as always, uh, I appreciate you. All right. At the midpoint, Tyrion's imprisonment at the Eyrie is revealing more elements about his character. Jan Doolittle-Wilson talks about this alongside a discussion of Cersei. Here is Jan Doolittle-Wilson. You know, Bronn is another great example, I think, of someone who is not at all invested in the the wars of the of the great houses. He's out for Braun. <laughs> He's out for his own survival. And he'll be loyal to anyone uh, who is able to do something for him. Yeah, talk about a survivor, but he's, oh. he's sort of an opportunistic survivor. Yes. And I uh, love Braun. And Tyrion is sort of, <laughs> yeah, right. I was just saying this to a, to a friend um, the other day, like, you know, the hound is a murdering son of a bitch. Yeah, but he's—I want to watch him. I like—I just oh, can't take my eyes yeah. off him. <laughs> oh, the Hound! We could all—we t- could talk forever about the Hound too. I mean, yeah, there's so many characters like that who are really just despicable. Mm. Right? I mean, they're just—they again do horrible things, or they're just really despicable people, yeah. and yet you're pulled in their direction in ways that you just don't anticipate as you go through. And I think, you know, certainly the Hound is a, is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, we're given his backstory pretty early on. The Hound you know, I is, think we're, yeah, that's right. That's right. He tells, we're kind of meant to sympathize pretty early on. Yeah, that's right. Now, Braun, I think that this is something of an introduction. We see that little flicker of a friendship between Tyrion and Braun <laughs> yes. when Tyrion makes Braun laugh. Yes. And... And Tyrion thinks uh, this is a start. Well, it is something of a start of a, of kind of an important relationship, even if it's sort of this relationship built out of commerce, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Anyway, yeah, yeah. And you know, 
the sad part about this to me in thinking about Bronn and thinking about Shay, I have lots of thoughts about Shay, but Tyrion, I think, has, other than, again, Jamie, um, Tyrion has experienced really only these kinds of relationships where this person is with me because they are getting something out of mm. it. They're with me because I pay them. Uh, they're with me because I have family name and standing. They're not really with me for me. They're not with me because they love me. They're not with me because they enjoy my company. There is always that, even with Braun, right? When he and Braun established this great camaraderie, there is still that feeling in the back of his mind, well, if I wasn't paying him, he probably wouldn't be here. Yeah. And that may be true. <laughs> that That's may be right. true for Braun. But, and same with Shay, know, right? This with Shay, yeah. right? Where she's saying, oh, my lion of, you know, Lannister mm -hmm. and, and my great one, and I love you. And he's thinking, oh, she must, uh, no, no, she doesn't, right? How could she love you? Yeah, how, how would he ever know? It's like. How would he ever know? Yeah. How can he ever be sure that somebody is with him for him? Mm -hmm given his history and, you know, given just the, the abuse that he faced his, his entire life growing mm -hmm. up. Um, you know, he says it again and again, if I had not been born a Lannister, I would have been left out in the woods to die. And yeah. it's probably true. That's right. That's right. His father wanted to throw him into the sea, <laughs> right? When he was born. Um, so he, he has this great mistrust as well. You know, this, this, he, he knows yeah, a well-earned mistrust, right? A well-earned mistrust, hmm. but you're, you're right that I think, especially when you get to the next chapter, he and Braun are riding side by side and laughing and joking. And even Catelyn is thinking, huh, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not sure Braun should be with this party. Um, mm -hmm. The two of them are bonding in, in ways that they really shouldn't be given that Braun is supposed to be the person helping me capture mm -hmm. Tyrion and take him to justice. And of course, her suspicions are proven to be true when Bronn stands up for him and, and fights for him. That's right. That's right. Which is a great moment, too. It's such a great moment. And it's it, again, it's Tyrion thinking, I have so little to work with here. Yeah. But but here I have this weapon in that I can make this guy laugh. Yes. And I'm going to use it to you know to to my own benefit because you know here i you know it's it's a survivor's mentality uh, and think about it does pay off yeah he was absolutely right he makes Braun laugh in this chapter and look how that pays off mm. yeah um so it's that humor it's that i'm gonna plug into whatever narrative is going on and find out what makes people light up and that's how i'll use it and so Tyrion's a user too, yes. but I think Tyrion's perpetual Achilles heel, if you want to put it that way, is he wants to be loved, right? He does care what people think. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he desperately wants approval. He constantly makes, you know, remarks about his father, but he desperately wants his father's approval. One even gets the hint that he wants Cersei's approval. Uh, he just wants to be loved. Yeah. And when it doesn't happen, you can see that that deep hurt, you know, again and again and again, humiliation, but also hurt. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, since we've talked about Tyrion and Jamie, yeah, I can't help myself but ask your impression of Cersei, and oh. specifically <laughs> with the fact that you know she she presents as villainous almost through the entire 
um, series up until we have it. But then she gets a POV later in the series. Right. So she becomes a point of view character later in the series. And um, how do you... I mean, now that we've seen a little bit of her interior, how do you read Cersei? I, I think that... I think a lot of people will read Cersei as sort of just a straight villain. Um, and I think that that's kind of how I read Cersei. And yet I think that there might be a tiny little bit of latent misogyny that goes into that reading. Yeah, yeah. She's another fascinating character. Uh, I was so happy when she finally got her own you know, point of view chapters later on. Um, I hope that's something George continues. Um, I agree on the one hand that she's extremely villainous yeah. <laughs> would I describe her as a straight-up villain maybe not you know just like Tyrion is born into a world that was not at all made for him mm. right Cersei was too you know she has tons of privileges tons of advantages she also draws on her family name and her wealth and you know t- to great effect but how often does Cersei say, you know, if I had been born a, a man, if I if I had been born a boy, hmm. you know, if I were a Lannister's son, how different would my life be? How different would I be treated by my father? What choices would be available to me? And so she's very much aware that, you know, I, I think Cersei maybe gives herself a little too much credit for her smarts. Um, I think, you know, Tyrion outsmarts her a lot, but... On the other hand, she hasn't really been allowed to develop her cleverness or her intellect, right? She was bred for a very particular purpose. Mm-hmm. That is to look pretty, to get married and bear sons, right? And continue the line. And used, um, yeah, and used in a way that graded against the core of her being, right? Yes. So Jamie, yes. Jamie is used by Tywin in a way that kind of grates against him. Like he doesn't really want to be the Lord of Casterly Rock, mm-hmm. but for a lot of, in a lot of ways, Jamie is used in a way that feels really comfortable to him. Like, yeah. like I like being, you know, best sword in the kingdom, bringing glory to my house, that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas Cersei is used in a way that just is completely uh, violent to her sense mm-hmm. of, of being. For for the benefit of her family, she's used in a way that is completely self-sacrificial. Yes. So and then the question it has nothing is... nothing to do with her, right? It's all about what she can bring to the family. Right. I mean, that's Tywin's whole philosophy. But, you know, she describes herself at one point as just a brood mare. She's passed that's around. That's how she feels. That's how she feels. And also think about the idea that... And, you know... There's the idea of choice, and Cersei makes terrible choices. Yeah. She's responsible for the choices she makes. However, had she been treated with more kindness, perhaps, right, mm. by particularly the men who have power over her. So had she been allowed to marry the man she was attracted to in the form of Rhaegar, right, if she had not been kind of pressured into uh, a loveless marriage, if Robert had been kinder to her. Right. I mean, on her wedding night, he whispers the name of another woman. It was clear to her from the very first moment. Maybe if she had been treated with more respect and kindness, she wouldn't have been so vengeful and made some of the choices that she made. So, you know, yes, she was born with great wealth and privilege. She has responsibility. But in terms of how she sees, you know, men and patriarchy and power, Mm. 
her entire life, she's been bashing against this because it's done nothing but use her and exploit mm-hmm. her. Um, it has never taken her into consideration. Right. Jamie's the only one who has. And that's deeply problematic, right. their relationship. Sure. But Jamie, much like with Tyrion, is the only one to show her tenderness and kindness and to put her needs before, you know, the needs of others, which also leads to terrible choices. Mm. But that's really the only form of affection, other than her children, of course, uh, that she has experienced. And yet this entire conversation could just be a way of showing that Martin can write an interesting villain, right? Yes. I think a lot of yes. a lot of villains, a lot of great stories have interesting villains that you could see how they came to think that the way that they do. Right. And how they came by their sort of ignoble actions honestly. Um, or at least you can kind of empathize with you know the plight of the of the villain in a way that complicates the story and makes it a better story, right? And how fraught that relationship and that divide is between hero and villain, yes. right? What makes someone a hero? What makes someone a villain? In Martin's world, those two boundaries are constantly crossed, right? They're constantly transgressed. You know, our villains can be heroes. Our heroes can be villains. There's really no other than maybe a Ned character who is pretty flat, right? In his, his characterization, most of these characters continually kind of cross those borders. And um, that's what makes them so interesting. Yeah. You know, why is Tyrion a hero and Jamie's a villain? Why is Cersei a villain? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, who, who gets to decide that? <laughs> and maybe again, that goes back to authorial intent. Right, I is do. it George Martin who decides that or do we decide that? We do. Why you and I, I say, get to you know decide. What? Yeah, Jamie's a hero. This is why Jamie's a hero. And somebody else could just vociferously disagree yeah. with me. And who's to say who's correct? Mm. That's what makes these stories so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. For more on the politics and plot points at the Erie, here is Arthur Jamfa. I also think that we... Like one of the things that struck me when I was rereading this was, wait, the the sky cells aren't prison, they're torture, right? That's right, absolutely. They're they're torture chambers, so they're nothing like a dungeon. Um, And so that's what kind of pushes him to desperation because he's getting tortured. Mm. He thinks, you know, I'd rather, you would, right? If you're getting tortured for two weeks, eventually you're like, well, I would rather gamble my life Mm. than continue to go through this torture and 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 in another way that he's really good is that he he exposes in in front of everyone the fact there's a torture chamber right he says is this how you do justice in the veil and then he describes Mm -hmm. the way that he's treated and everyone can tell and he shows everyone at court that he's been Mm -hmm. he's been hit he's got bruises on his face right exactly and tells him he hasn't eaten and and so becomes apparent what they're doing um and that it's 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 um, and, so, and so, yeah, so I think that's, that's why I think he's, he's gambling. Not that, I don't think Tyrion would be someone that if he could just wait for Jamie Lannister, wouldn't wait for Jamie Lannister. But I think it becomes mm-hmm. quite clear that if he stays longer in the sky cells, he would die uh, quite quickly. Yeah. And I think that, he, I mean, it's an educated gamble. He knows because he's a lord um, or he has lordly status or whatever. Um 
that he's a nobleman, that that they're going to treat him differently. They they have to treat him with some amount of dignity because he's not just a he's not just a garden variety prisoner, right? So that's part of his gamble is that if he demands a, a trial, if he if he shows up the Knights of the Vale to be dishonorable for allowing this torture to happen, that they will they will respond because of his status as a nobleman. I think at this point in the in the book, when he says that he's not convinced that they're not going to kill them, you you don't believe him. You think they can't possibly kill him. But I think mm-hmm. once you've read more of Martin's work, you realize that actually he could just die. Um, That's interesting. Because I was thinking, yes, I was thinking that along those lines. But then I was thinking, I also don't trust that Lady Lysa or Sweet Robin are going to be politically savvy enough not to kill him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, because they're I, yeah. because they're portrayed as as batshit crazy, right? Um, or or just not as smart enough to play that kind of game. And so, I think Tyrion thinks they may just send me through the moon door just to do it. I think. Uh, I th- yeah, I think Book Lysa is very intelligent though. Um, Unless, un, like, unlike Show Lysa, which I think is portrayed as quite crazy and just quite erratic, mm-hmm. I think Book Lysa controls the core of of the eerie yeah. in a way that no other lord or lady does. And I think she's trying to kill, um, she is trying to kill Tyrion quite clearly because I think she's trying to pin the death of her husband on him to try and try and make sure that no one suspects her and if he dies he well sure himself. and that's right and if her son who's six year old who's six years old is the judge of this trial which she thinks is going to happen if he demands a trial mm-hmm. then she can basically claim like hey it wasn't me the gods decided yeah exactly or you know he had a fair trial he was judged by the lord of the realm or the Lord of the Eerie to be guilty. Uh, it just the we we went through due process. Uh, or or once he demands trial by combat, she's thinking, well, the gods have decided. So I it, this they can't pin this on me. Um, this is not we did not mistreat him. He had a fair trial. So I think that you're probably right that she she's certainly smarter than she's portrayed in the in the show. But I think from Tyrion's perspective. I don't think he quite knows her motives. I don't think he knows what she is capable of. And so I think he's he's fearing for his life, right? I think he believes that she's on the same page as Catelyn is, right? She's trying to get to the truth. Mm. Therefore, he believes if I keep risking my life, I probably won't die because if I die, then the truth dies with me or the or whatever it is. And that's why Catelyn doesn't want him to die, right? She, she says, if he's dead, he's only good for the crows. But actually, the mm. reason why Lysa messes it up is because she keeps trying to get him killed because she's it's not trying to get to the truth. She's trying to bury the truth. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. So this, I, I, I do of... want to talk about that a little bit here. Yeah. 
uh, Tyrion is sort of musing over his accusations. He's being accused of two things. He's being accused of attempting to kill Bran, right? Mm-hmm. And he's accused of, of murdering the Hand of the King, right? Yes. And as, as he's in the cell, he's thinking, you know, he's thinking over these two murders or attempted murders. And he notices that the person who tried to kill Bran was clumsy. Like this was a this was a horrible attempt yeah, yeah, yeah. at assassination. Mm. But that the person who killed Arryn was deft. Mm. Like this that was a whoever did the the first murder, that person is smart. Mm. Whoever tried to kill Bran was not smart. And at that point, he wonders, I wonder if there's more beasts in the woods than the direwolf and the lion. In other words, he's thinking, there's no way these two murders were done by the same person. And (laughs) moreover, he thinks, uh, it was probably one of my siblings who tried to kill Bran. (laughs) He said, those two stupid, they're they're so stupid that it's probably them behind the, the botched murder of Bran. But it has to be someone who's not a Lannister who killed Robert Arryn. And that's when he wonders if, if there's, you know, if it's some other uh, person who's trying to use him as a cat's paw, right? He doesn't know it's Lysa. Of course, we know in retrospect she's at least part of it, right? She's at least part of the plot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, we, uh, you, to your point, we, in retrospect, we totally see that Lysa is trying to pin it on him. Because she's covering up her own sin, right? Yeah, and, and I think it's it's something I like when you read the the Catelyn uh, chapter that comes afterwards that really strikes you is that all of these hints are getting dropped about there's there is something weird about Lysa going on here, and and it goes back to what we said about the um, the atmosphere that Martin is setting hmm. and in the eerie is that something is not as it seems. Everyone is playing a game. So what is actually going on? What's going on is definitely not what we're seeing. We don't, at this point in the book, we don't know what we're seeing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now Steve and I talk about our top five wow moment deaths in the first four seasons. And Steve and I answer listener feedback. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Hello. Hello. I'm going to send you a text. Okay. (laughs) 
sending you a list. Okay. Steve, I just sent you a list by way of text message. Yes. Have you received it? I have. Would you read the list for us? Uh, yes. Joffrey. Uh, is it Viserys? Viserys? Yeah, you got it. Viserys. Viserys. Shay. Uh, Lysa. Red Wedding. Tywin. Egret. Oberyn. And Ned. What these have in common, these represent dramatically horrific deaths. Right. I, what I'd like to do is I would like to rank the top five effectively horrific deaths. Or, let's say, effectively surprising deaths. Okay. Uh, if those are two different things. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think so. All right. So, I'm going to start with my fifth highest okay on this list so yeah because like we're talking horrific and we're talking about shocking right so those are two those are two different things yeah i think effective for dramatically effectively dramatic okay i think i think yeah because horrific because it could be a subtle death sure but but with with a large impact and maybe a surprise that i think it's sort of like it's sort of like a wow death like sure. I can't believe they killed that person. I was not expecting that. And oh shit, what's gonna happen now? That right, right, right. So let's call it a let's call call this a wow death. Sure. I think my fifth highest is Lysa. Yeah. Because so far Littlefinger really hasn't done anything of with his own hands. Right. That's, yeah, he, that's, that's true. He's just, he's like Lex Luthor. He's like behind the scenes. He's using his mind to like outmaneuver everybody. And you really get the sense. Like I got the sense that he had just arrived at the, the eerie like two seconds ago. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like he just came in, he like wiped off his feet and he walked right up to Lysa and said, I've always loved one woman. Your sister, cat, and pushes him, pushes her out of the moon door. I know. Why does he got to throw that shade right out there? Like, I mean, and in the in the little finger voice. Can you imagine that being the last voice you hear before you die? That's that's the worst part. Yeah, you're, and to find out that like like he's telling you, like he's breaking up with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean that's no that's no good, right? Because he should be grateful. Yeah, you're right? what little finger man. It's in your name. <laughs> All right, was your number five? Shay, Shay, yeah. Was it because of who did it? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so Shay, so right at. I mean, so she she did this. You know, she she sold him out in court, right? And that and that sort of sends him through the spiral where he just starts basically talking all kinds of trash to the entire King's Landing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, but there was, you know, we discussed this like how and why and how do we get there? Like, so like there's this, there's this, there's more to the Shea story than, than we, we have to assume. It wasn't just because like he broke up, like we felt like there was more to their relationship and even the breakup 
that was understood, right? So, so Shay. You know what was crazy about that is just the fact that she was in Tywin's bed made me question everything I knew about Tywin. Right. Well, yeah. I thought I know this guy's a villainous. I know he's a horrible, you know, father. I didn't know he was totally full of bullshit. Yeah. No. Right. I mean, so that. So so when you see her there, it's like that. That's so jarring. And I didn't see, I didn't see Tyrion killing her in that scenario. I didn't like, there was so much like the abruptness in which it goes down with no resolution, right? So it's another one of those, if she had never died or she'd never even come back, like I I think Mm -hmm. I could have lived with it and just had it be just sort of this echo in Tyrion's, uh, you know, subconscious that, you know, like of losing love and never having closure on why Mm -hmm. she turned on him. Like, that would have also been an okay narrative, but to have him now murder her, it's that sets in, it sets a whole uh, different set of things in motion, right? Because Tyrion now is, I mean, that's the thing is like, we talk about, you know, Jamie pushing a brand out a window. Mm-hmm. There's all these different mm-hmm. things. And it's like, and it, and I don't know if it's because of the circumstance or because of how we've all just, we're committed to enjoying Tyrion at all costs. Um, it's an easy one to, to kind of walk away from. Be like, oh, well, you know, mm-hmm. life is hard for Tyrion. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough thing, and, and and complicated further by his. I'm sorry. So it's like that's a collection of, and so it does bring up the like he doesn't kill Tywin. I don't think right. No, that doesn't happen if he doesn't kill. Uh, so, Shay. so that I mean, if you talk about uh, like the cascading events, right? Um, and it's interesting. Like, so for me, it, it's almost a chronology at this point, right? So Oberyn, Oberyn doesn't die; he's set free. Who knows if he ever finds out about the Shay time thing, and if right. he, what his response is going to be? Because there's not that other level of desperation, right? Okay, my fourth highest is going to be Oberyn. Okay. It felt like Oberyn was... I mean, he was... He had convinced me that he was the better man in that fight. Right. It Not only was it surprising, but it was like... The whole skull-popping business? Yeah. I mean that was that it was gruesome. You, I, it was sort of like not caught me by surprise, but also caught me by the sort of the horror meter of it. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, that was actually my when I'm going through this list. Uh, I, I had him um, as well, and it's similar to the, it, I was surprised because it really seemed like that was the you know. I mean, that was Tyrion's get out of jail free card, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, he wins, Tyrion is free, and it complicates everything, right? It complicates that family dynamic, it complicates Tyrion now is out, but what can you do? No one can do that. cascading of events seemed pretty intriguing. And because Oberyn would seem like, an, anybody seems like an underdog to the mountain, it felt like he wins. Like, I mean, there was a lot about mm-hmm. it that just seemed like he was going to win. And then... As it went on, like it became a little more clear that, like, oh, he's 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 Bond villaining, right? And that's what we discussed. Yeah. And so, well, and it was sort of like this is the guy that is gonna. He's no rival to the Mountain. This guy's rival, true rival, is Tywin. 
Right. So he has to live to at least fight Tywin. Right, right. So there's all these different aspects of like, he won't get killed here. And then yeah. right when you start to think, oh, he he might. Oh my gosh, he's going to get killed here. They they get you with the pop. <laughs> so right when you think you're like, you've already arrested the fact like, oh my gosh, you may actually lose this thing. And then it was like, okay, here's some more surprise for you. You know, pop his head. So it, it, it was a gift they kept on giving in terms of uh, surprising and horrific. My th- number three on my list is Tywin. And the reason why okay. Tywin is that I think he may be the one character that's more interesting in the show than he is in the books. Oh. Like he's a formidable character in the books, but the uh, Charles dance, the guy who plays Tywin that he, to me, he's forever Tywin Lannister. And he just was so compelling. Like he, he stole every scene he was in. Right. And so even though I knew his death was coming, I had fallen in love with just that portrayal of Tywin on the screen, much more so than I did on the pages. Mm, interesting. So for me, Ty, for me, Tywin's number three. That's pretty solid. Yeah, I um, I remember like of all the like the characters like like I just was like, what do we do now when Tywin died? <laughs> like, and it's weird because you know he's definitely not a guy you're rooting for per se. But he held so much together. And, yeah. And it did feel like as soon as you eliminate him. Yeah. Going he, back to yeah. my, my love for compelling villains. I mean, who was a more compelling villain? Right. Because, I mean, you had crazy. with Like, with, you've had crazy. You've had vicious. You've had all. But, like, in terms of tactical and and to a certain degree, he really believes what he's doing. Like he believes what he's doing is right. And he's, and I bet he would tell you straight out like, Oh no, this is some vile stuff I'm doing, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. the right, it's the right thing to do. And that's, that's what it makes. I think what makes a villain even like the most compelling is when, you know, it's one thing to sow the seeds of chaos, but it's another thing to do it because you truly believe that what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah. He's, he's Thanos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next. Uh, I kind of, you know, it's funny cause it's like there, it feels like Joffrey should, should get some attention. Um, but there <laughs> well, was, that was quite jarring. It was jarring. It was, and I think the most jarring part about it, uh, was when it happened, right? Yeah, like in terms sure. of like when it happened in the season. Yeah. Like season, like episode two of that season. Right. So that, I think that part about it, which was very which was great. It, it's a great moment for the show and just in general, because what it did was it got you out of your rhythm. Right. And, and Joffrey's such a, a he was, like I said, he's, he's the guy who chops Ned's head off. He's a big deal. Yeah. But there's also this sense of like, you knew that, I guess my feeling is like his death had less of maybe an a, a overarching impact going forward. Cause like, nobody's like, we must have been Joffrey. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Right. It, it it causes a problem. Obviously, it causes a problem for Tyrion, and on and on it goes. But in terms of like the the vacuum of leadership, you know, so which is which is part of what makes this dance so compelling. All right. So you're number two. Red wedding. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. It's just. Uh, it's. 
it is it's 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 jarring it's it's massive it um it breaks rules um it's it it, it, it but you know it's funny because it's there was an inevitable an inevitability to it you know that i don't think you appreciate until it's actually unfolding yeah it's interesting though because i don't think either one of us would have said rob catlin and talisa like those those are characters i can't do without right right but just the fact that they can take those three characters and wipe them off the board summarily and the fact that Arya was right at the gates yeah. She was just about to be reunited. You know, I, th- that that whole business. It's amazing what they did with... They made us feel about those characters in retrospect. Right. That they were more important than they were when they were alive. Yeah, because always, they always felt necessary but not compelling. Like There was this, like, okay, we're going to... You know, what's Rob doing? All right, like, check that box. Mm-hmm. And the Rob and... Catlin tension that was building was like, all right, it's fine. You know, it was it, 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 like it was real and necessary, right? Like it, it complicated things. So it was. It, I think also what's happening is, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, um, the political intrigue is really ramping up, and so you're really investing in the the five king concept. That's right. And Rob of all of the five kings was the good guy, right? Right. He was the good guy, or at least was it? And, and there was. And he was doing well, right? And so he was a threat. Mm-hmm. And there was all these different aspects to the old, like how it fit into the overall picture. That that that's when like the three of them getting wiped out, where the sum became you know greater than than the individual parts, right? Like because of what it laid to waste and the 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 after. Yeah, it, it changed everything. It changed the it changed the entire landscape of the. It plot, changes right? the focus of uh, of Tywin's. Um, well, I got to deal with this Rob guy, the King of the North. Now the North is 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 up for like up for grabs, and I think you can appreciate what happens. Not so much maybe because of who they are, but because what they represented. Because yeah, they did yeah. they, the show did do a good job of of creating the political landscape and and where that fit in where Rob's. Um, ascendance fit in to have it just completely wiped out is uh, was bonkers. And again, the way they they did it, the way that it was, it's an incredible scene um, musically. Uh, the way that it's shot, um, performances are fantastic. All right, I, I'm I'm assuming both of us have Ned as our number one. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, without it, I mean, it's it's it happens, you know, season one. Um, it's, it's, it happened before we really knew what Game of Thrones could do, right? Right. Yeah. Because and so it, we we see we see where it's building. There was there was a way to get out of it. It seemed like you know he didn't have uh, he the tension felt like getting up to the point where now you're ruining reputation and everything like that. That in and of itself would have created a cascade of events right so it's right. It, you know all of the i mean the impact is just not only just his family but like everything right and and it's fascinating when you really look back on it now especially having seen what all this has brought it's it was just joffrey being a dick <laughs> joffrey just on a whim just deciding no i don't like the look of his face right and now, and then, because even even I mean, Cersei wasn't was obviously has all this 
like you know badness in her heart but like that was a moment too where all of a sudden everything just spirals out of control and she knows like she knows enough to be like okay yeah not everyone only- everyone is just totally going nuts yeah including cersei yeah because on one hand it's like because it's a twofold thing one is oh how do we deal with this now and uh-huh. also oh my son is worse than thought. <laughs> <laughs> but so so it's like it's again it's another uh, element of like who's who's left <laughs> you know it becomes that too is right. who's left to start running things because are we gonna be rooting for like is the next best person we have like I mean you have Danny but then like is it yeah by the end of the by the end of the series everyone will be dead but Ramsey and you'll be like well I guess I'm rooting for Ramsey <laughs> well exactly it feels like is this gonna be like am I gonna have to watch Greyjoy and and Bolton go head to head and go ah, just I don't care you know like I mean, <laughs> so it is it is an odd one right I mean it's like. It, because like it'll be Sam versus Tom and vying against the, for the Iron Throne. You know what? I actually had that that funny moment like in my head last night where I was just like, "Yeah, what if that is just how this thing breaks down, right?" Tom and and, and Sam becomes like his grand master and <laughs> Hot Pie is like master Hot of Hot the hand master of, of bread, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I mean, at this point, you're like, "Why not?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Melisandre Ghost, resurrects Dantos to be the king's guard. <laughs> uh, all right. Are you prepared for questions? I mean, no. But um, I mean, not. I mean, I shouldn't say no. I mean, I'm not not prepared. But I'm not like prepared. You know, I don't have. You need to like go to the bathroom and look in the mirror and like sort of psych myself up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like, daddy's little boy's going to do great today. Something like that. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Uh, and, you know, one thing that never seems to uh, be a problem is is saying the word daddy in the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness. Um, I think I'm going to give you a question here. I, I think I think you're going to do well. I think this is, this is going to set you up well. <laughs> okay, great. This is from uh, Dogwood. In Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dogwood writes to me, but you'll hear you'll hear your question here. Now, is he is he asking why they're closing all the factories down? <laughs> she is not talking about Allentown in the famous Billy Joel song. Got it. Uh, but I'm I'm sure she's familiar with that. And and Dogwood, if you're not, I mean, do yourself a favor. <laughs> wouldn't that be weird like i mean if you just no idea about this song i mean i, I guess... mean the piano man has dedicated an entire song to your town yeah I would, I would think that that would be like you sing the national anthem at whatever you know minor league affiliate you've got and then you immediately follow it up with valentine well unless there's this big rivalry with bethlehem and <laughs> they just don't want any song that mentions bethlehem that's right it's like we don't even want to acknowledge it, and that's one of the things that's like why Billy Joel can't play in Allentown is because they're like, look, you, I mean, if you want to take those words out, it's like, well, that's kind of no. What in that song? What happens to Bethlehem? They're building something. Uh, in Bethlehem, they're building time. I think that they're building time <laughs> in Bethlehem. 
Uh, <laughs> that I mean, that's, that's why you, that, that's like, that's messing with some serious voodoo right there. Man. <laughs> that's the, that's my question. <laughs> Is what are they building in Bethlehem? In the, what exactly in the does it mean to build time? Let me see if I can, uh, I'm actually going to look it up. I'm going to go to my information device and see if I can. Uh, so dogwood this is uh this is part of our they're answer to you will be time. it's they're, killing time they're killing and i'm bethlehem they're killing time filling out forms standing in line i see i see now for some reason building time sounds more menacing to me than killing time yeah i mean killing time obviously that's like you know hey like filibustering is, is, is yeah an example, you're, right? you're doing but, you're, you're waiting around for nothing but building time seems much more like something you would expect from like Dr. Manhattan. Exactly. Yeah. For some reason. All right. So Dogwood says, love, love, love electric boogaloo. Steve is my favorite pretend watch party friend. (laughs) His first watch commentary has renewed my love for game of Thrones. If you have space for this in your next Q and a, I want to ask him about his evolving relationship with the genre. Now that he has gotten into this fantasy story, is he open to others? For example, will he give House of the Dragon a try? That's a great question. So, yeah, I here's it. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I've been a a bit of a, a reluctant uh, fantasy fan, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I blame Willow. Um, <laughs> Don't you know what? Don't sleep on Willow. I. I will sleep on Willow. I'm going because to. that's, that's on Tom again. Cruise before he had the teeth fixed. Ah, uh, you're thinking of Legend. Oh, crap. You're right. I am. <laughs> uh, Warwick Davis. Uh, yeah, Warwick Davis. That's right. Uh, Val Kilmer. Joanne Wally. Before she was Joanne Wally Kilmer. It was just not. I mean, we have such high hopes. Such high hopes for Willow. I think Willow really ruined it for me. Um, so, yeah. So, I... He, has this opened my my mind to maybe some more fan i mean maybe i mean like in terms of house of the dragon i'd like i would definitely say that i am all in on anything game of thrones at this point now whether or not i'm willing to expand my boundaries so it's not a genre it's still not a genre thing for you i don't you're still going to be skeptical of the genre yeah i feel like i would need another example of something else in the genre that i could go okay look now this this alongside uh, Game of Thrones. Okay, this is this is something I'm willing to jump into, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it, it's one of those things where it's like I I still I'm, I'm somewhat maybe viewing this as the exception. Sure, and so I'm, and so yeah. I'm willing to continue down that path of mm-hmm. the exception to see if it, you know, and then and who knows who knows where that path may lead me. But um, I don't I don't think I've done much in the world of fantasy beyond Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, other other fantasy things. I mean, obviously, the aforementioned legend, um, mistakenly mentioned legend, um, (laughs) which I have seen, and um, and again, it then it wasn't exactly doing doing doing. It's a nice little slice of life. I mean, it's like it's it's kind of fun to see Tom Cruise before the Wizards of Bethlehem (laughs) built time into his. You know, DNA or whatever it was. Yeah, crazy to think about, right? Like that he has, you know, he's he's now. I mean, like he's almost ageless, and I think that is. He's not. Yeah, he's not human anymore. I don't think. 
No, when when they were in Bethlehem, when they were engineering Paul Rudd, and they had a little ex leftover pieces, they went over into into Tom Cruise's mouth. Is now I of, I don't I don't think of Paul Rudd in that way. Is he is he a lot older than I would think? Oh, uh, he's in his fifties. Because I know that Cruise is isn't he pushing sixty? I think he's he, I think he's surpassed sixty. Well, there, there was a there was a popular meme going around uh, where they were showing Wilford Brimley side by side with uh, <laughs> with Paul Rudd, and they said Paul Rudd is the age now that Wilford Brimley was in Cocoon. <laughs> and, that's pretty great. And that's uh, and I don't know, and a lot of people have used that as as evidence that somehow that you know. Uh, Paul Rudd is immortal, but I would say, it, look, Paul Rudd's fine. Um, I, I think the issue is, is that we, we're sleeping on maybe how awful Wilford Brimley had it, um, mm -hmm. because Wilford Brimley was one of these guys. I think that like he sold his soul to the devil, and he says, "Hey, look, I'm going to make it so that you never age." And he says, "I'll get on board with that." He says, "But here's the thing: you're going to look 73 for as long as you're alive." <laughs> And as a twelve-year-old, he really and, you should know not what, have to be made honest, that deal. Steve, I don't think that I actually have evidence of his death. I don't know. Do you? I mean, I think people just were like, I think what happened is the the headline because he could have just shaved his mustache and he could be anywhere. <laughs> He's Paul you Rudd. would not, you would not recognize him. I think what it is is that the headline was um, Wilford Brimley probably dead, right? And we just went with it. <laughs> You know, and then another publication picked it up. Wilford Brimley, yeah, he's got to be dead. If you shave that mustache, I bet you he has vampire fangs. And I can guarantee you that is the scariest vampire you've ever encountered. <laughs> the, thing, the fun fact is he doesn't, like, he does. He shaves the rest of his face around the mustache. <laughs> so he just lets it grow out. So right now he just, he's just, he just looks like a koosh ball. <laughs> This is a question for me. Uh, this is from Anonymous. I would like to put forward a candidate for your genius slash badass warrior. Steve, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I, I put it forth my lists for I thought sort of the top 15 geniuses in the Game of Thrones universe. Mm. And the, the top 10 or 15 badass warriors. And my point was to say... There's no name that overlaps on both lists. And that that's what Martin does. He'll either give you super brains or he'll give you super badass warrior capabilities, but he won't give you both. So anyway, I've had a number of emails challenging me on this point. So that this is one of those. So Anonymous says, I would like to put forward a candidate for your genius slash badass warrior, Barristan Selmy. My feeling has always been that he was a wise, savvy, and yes, super smart character. He knows how to survive from Targaryen to Baratheon rule, and he doesn't make mistakes. This is best seen in the fact that he keeps his own counsel most of the time. Finally, we know that we'll be getting POV chapters from him in wins. I would put him in the top 10 fighters and perhaps in the top 10 strategists. The latter remains to be seen, but that is my prediction. What do you think? Well, as you say, Anonymous, he keeps his own counsel. And I'll give him credit. He's certainly a survivor, but until we see those, you know, see his character arc in Winds of Winter, 
We won't know, but I remain open. So uh, let's revisit this. Email me again once we get wins, which is like 20 years from now, <laughs> by AI Martin, and we will uh, we'll revisit the conversation then. As of now, I'm going to hold to my stance. He's at best a candidate. You know, is that what it is? He's at best a candidate. That's right. That's right. All right, Steve, this is for you. This is from Ian in San Diego. San Diego. Recently, you said that you're into chicken nuggets. Mm. Indeed, you said that you might even try the worst chicken nuggets. Mm -hmm. My question seeks to explore the other end of the spectrum. Where would you go for the best chicken nuggets? Where would I go? So I, this is like... This is kind of like I think, an I think that Ian is assuming that you don't make your own chicken nuggets. No, I don't think I've ever tried. In fact, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin mm -hmm. um, with the chicken nugget. Like, I think you're is... going to have to begin with some sort of chicken puree. So you, so okay, so you're, so you're saying, <laughs> in order to. to to make a proper chickens. And I think you're looking at a chicken McNugget, right? Like that's your thought is you need to take what would be chicken. Uh, Something and, that's, and, that's and chicken product and not actually get it chicken. Into, get it into a paste of some sort, right? Almost like a, because like I think that the best thing chicken. that you would be able to do in your own home would be like a chicken finger, which to my mind is not a nugget. So, well, that's, so have you had, have you had pure, I guess, yeah, the idea of like a pure breast of chicken in nugget form, which is essentially like it is, it's, it's more yeah, like of a course I've had, I've, I've, I've had those and you do cert, you know, certainly you would get that, at, I don't know, like a Chick-fil-A, I suppose, you know, high, a higher end nugget. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, the chicken fingertip, as I said, I think it's probably what, it, what you're looking at. Um, it's a chicken thumb maybe sure um yeah. as opposed to a chicken finger um the but yeah so if you were gonna have to like get into a puree or a paste like that now that's fascinating to me like because like what you know like a wendy's chicken nugget obviously is following that same sort mm -hmm. of path um the and really what it comes down to is is i think it's the probably the breading that's doing the work so the trick is to get that chicken paste that has a really good uh you know flavor a good foundation whereas the the breading and is you know why not just compliment. sprinkle in a just a little bit of like you know that really sort of high-end rat meat in there mm. or yeah, at least I'm go like a whisker a whisk like a like i don't know like a, a rat whisker yeah see i mean I, I don't i'm thinking it might be even just a touch more uh exotic like it might be like skunk oh my uh and uh you know, I mean, I just without without knowing uh, what skunk meat tastes like on its own, because I, mean, I think you really want it to be a compliment. I, I mean, flavor. I would I would assume it tastes a lot like possum if if you if you are able to remove the the glandular uh, odor a spray sack right. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you'd probably want to eat it more at the front end of the skunk meat. How, anyway, that's sort of off topic. Ian. Ian wants to know where you would go for the best nuggets. Now, is the question where would I go or how far would I go? Because that's those are you know that's. I think he uh, like, he where says where, but I'm interested to know how far. <laughs> <laughs> I guess 
basically that's what I think, right? I mean, it's like, like if I said if, if I said, "Hey, Steve, Dayton has been voted best chicken nuggets in the country. Would you travel four days to come meet me for nuggets here in Dayton?" Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I mean that's easy. It's an easy call. <laughs> I would go. I'd go pretty far, right? If I if I was to find out, so I'm here on the West Coast. If I was to find out that, like, oh man, I tell you what. You got to go to Maine. You got to go to Maine for the best nuggets. Mm -hmm. We can't ship them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not the same unless you get them fresh, fresh out the fryer. Uh, Yeah, I'll go to Maine. All right. I do think that we're talking around Ian's question. Literally, he says, where would you go for the best chicken nuggets? And I think what he means is in my he wants he wants my recommendation. What restaurant do you think has the best chicken? That that's what I would yeah. That's how I would no, interpret that. That makes that. sense. Um God, that's that's and so again, like we are we defining, you know, do we you kind of went and suggested that like a Chick-fil-A where it's like all breast meat is kind of a highfalutin nugget and maybe not a true nugget. Is that? I, I is think that so. I, and I don't even know if Chick Fil A calls them nuggets. What um, would they call them? I don't. I don't know, man. I <laughs> this is a question for you. I I don't know why I've been brought into this at all. Well, because you you were sort of laying down. You you have for a person who's. I'm just not, trying to get Ian his question <laughs> answered. For, for a person who's I'm not advocating nuggets, you sure have a lot of opinion Ian. on what's a real nugget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're creating all kinds of ground rules for what I these know. nuggets. So the Burger King had the chicken tender, if I recall. I think they did eventually go to a nugget. I'm gonna. Did, ten- did the word tender make people feel too vulnerable? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it really. And but it was a nugget. I mean, it was for sure a nugget. It was just a long nugget, which was a problem. <laughs> I don't even like saying it out loud. Um. I'm going to have to, you know what, I owe Ian some more research because it's been a while since I've, like, really okay. nuggeted. Like, I'm okay, gonna say, well, that, you know, that's good. I'm glad. So you're going to go do some more research. You're going to mm-hmm. go to, I don't know what, at least half a dozen nuggets mm-hmm. from different places, and you're going to try them side by side. Now, now, the trouble with that is that by the time you get to that last restaurant, the first restaurant's nuggets will be cold. Yeah, this is going to be a whole. This is this is going to take Cracker Jack time, and I'm going to probably have to to assemble it. What team. we're going to do? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna place Steve in a sort of a central location, exactly. and go get have advanced scouts go out so that Steve can get the optimal hot nugget experience. Yeah. I may I may need to uh, uh, rent a helicopter. But Ian, this is this is for you, man. I mean, I don't like if you're out there right now, just going, look, I can't wait for this episode to release because I'm I'm got a hankering. I mean, hopefully this isn't your death row meal, and I'm just wasting your time. Um, <laughs> if, if that's the case, just just go to Wendy's, get some spicy nugs, and call it, um, and get like 37 of them if it's your death row meal. Just just load up, load up, because I tell you what, if you're getting the chair and you're in San Diego, so probably not. But who knows where you're being tried? Uh, if you're uh, <laughs> If you do that, load up on those nuggets. When they flip that switch, you know what? It's <laughs> you kind of get the last word, if you know what I mean. And they are going to have to just throw that chair out. <clears throat> I hope that that is satisfying to you, Ian. This is my this is the last question. This is from Kim in Germantown, and this is for me. Germantown, the the less popular follow up to Allentown. 
Germantown is in Ohio and actually not too far from me. Is that right? Yeah. I'm sure that there are other German towns in. Is, is there in, a rival town also Bethlehem? Yeah, I, I always, Bethlehem. always the rival Bethlehem because of the time building. <laughs> um. All right. So Kim asks, uh, "You have noted your love of Stranger Things alongside Game of Thrones. In fact, I think you said the two were your favorite TV shows. That's right, Kim. They are." As we know, Stranger Things is coming out with season four. If season four does not live up to the hype, would you still consider covering it? Or would that sour your feelings about the franchise? Well, Kim, my my feeling is that if Steve and I were to cover Stranger Things, if the show went south, we would just have more fun with it. I don't, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I um, I'm, it's yeah, and that brings up an interesting uh point, right? Like, it's it's certain people have like I think a classic uh, uh example. Well, Game of Thrones has some from everything I gather some mixed uh, feelings as the series goes on, but then mm-hmm. um, but like Dexter is another example, right? It it takes a it takes a, a severe turn where everyone's like, this show sucks, right. and uh, and so. I, but I don't know that people have like I it, oh like they have an affinity for it, but at the same time, you know, is it fun? Right? Is it is it a fun experience when something that you're super excited about um, sort of jumps the shark? Um, and I think Stranger Things has that a, has the potential to be more in the fun if it's bad, because I because sure because I think I think if it goes if it goes south, it's probably going to go south. My guess is is in a way that might be potentially like more uh like b movie-ish mm-hmm. kind of bad right well that's right and there and stranger things is famously stranger things is drawing from a lot of b movie tropes and you know intentional homages so it would be kind of fun for me to experience that type of stranger things as well i could even probably in advance be making the argument that oh no that's part of it they're doing this on purpose <laughs> This is a well, true homage. So yeah, right. Clearly, Kim, like I brought Steve on to cover Game of Thrones, him having never seen it, sort of guessing that Steve is going to have some really funny things to say about the final season, which everyone kind of gagged over, but I think Steve's really gonna enjoy making fun of that and that the the misplaced endgame. That that would be my that would be my guess. And so, in other words, I know something about Steve. Steve actually has this weird love for really bad media. Oh yeah. In fact, it could be that the worse it is, the more you love it. That's probably accurate, and that's the same way I feel about comedy. And it's like I want to see great comedy, or I want to see really bad comedy. So I I have a lot of fun by like introducing Steve to like movies like Penitentiary 2 mm, famously delightful. or or The Man from Earth which I thought Oof. was just hilariously entertainingly bad. Absolutely incredible. Uh and Steve, I think you enjoyed both of those. Oh, immensely. <laughs> I tell people to watch it and then they get mad. 
there was a period there was something where somebody posted one time on uh, facebook like hey we're looking for like a family friendly movie you know kids of various ages and i said oh you're gonna you want to watch uh, easter bunny puppy and easter bunny puppy is hands down one of the most bizarre awful films i've, ever ne- made. I've never heard of it you got to tell me about this uh there is no i don't even know if there's an easter theme in this movie that's what's incredible about it the puppy's not an easter bunny puppy he's not an easter puppy i don't i fact, i'm I feel like there's a cat most most of the time. It is fascinating. Me <laughs> it is. So this person, I think to this day, is still holds that against me because they actually went, they just watched it uh, via my recommendation. <laughs> and so it's like, called wow, why Easter would he... Bunny Puppy? Yeah, and like their thought was like, well, why would he Why would he come on to my post and, and prank me? <laughs> so they're so angry. Uh, all right, well, good. So I think that... Um... Listeners ha- now have something new to explore. Now, should they watch this at Easter, or is this not something? You know that- what? I, here's the thing: is like, so you know, how, like everyone's like, "Hey, Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Easter Bunny Puppy is a Die Hard movie." <laughs> <laughs> uh, anytime, anytime. That's what's great about it. Um, you know, and if someone's like, "Well, I don't celebrate Easter from a religious standpoint," that's great. I think Easter Bunny's fine. I think it's you know. Easter Bunny Puppy is a it's 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 a genre buster for sure. Easter itself is sort of a genre buster. I feel like Easter because it's you know it's you know it's a whole thing that starts with Jesus. Right. There's no eggs involved. There's no bunnies involved. No. So well, why not if, add a puppy? I, I I mean sure. It's open. And think about it. I mean, if you look back at the Gospels, not a lot of mentions of puppies, and I'm wondering if that's probably kind of hurting uh the brand as the years have gone on you got the babies babies are important right Mm -hmm. but then you have like people killing babies and that famously that doesn't sell no and they Um, were smart to not have anybody killing puppies i mean that's sure puppies yeah if you started if they if the bible were to bring in puppies those puppies would absolutely die Right. Well, that's what we've seen with the John Wick films, right? I mean, he can kill as many people as, as Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Vengeance-filled John Wick of the first century. Yeah, because, right. yeah, they killed his dog. <laughs> Pilot kills Jesus' puppy yeah. as a child. Yeah, when they did the rewrites, they're like, you know what? Let's just crucify Jesus. There's no way we can do the dog scene. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. First two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV Plus, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. 
just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved the venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of hot D and reading a lot of fire and blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to widen the scope as Elio Garcia and I talk about HBO adaptations. For these developments and more, here is Martin's co-author, Elio Garcia. Famously, you know, you stopped watching after season five. Yeah. Uh, but what are your... Do you have a sense of anticipation for House of the Dragon? Will you be watching? Do you have a sense that it'll be a satisfying viewing experience for you? I will be watching, you know, different showrunner. I don't know his work very well. I've been listening to his podcast. David and Dan came to the books having it sent to them by George's agent. And they read it and they loved it and they wanted to make it. He has been a fan for much longer than as in from before his career started. So I, I, I'd be interested to see what difference that makes to adaptations sure. at the same time. At the same time, it's television. It's still HBO. He still has yeah. to make. So I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm interested in seeing it. 
I am much more open to because the, the story that is presented in Fire and Blood is full of um, alternate dueling sources telling us what happened right. that aren't necessarily the same. So they have a lot of room in my mind yeah. to play with that. And it's it's much more thin. They create all sorts of things. So I, my only concern with it is will people want to see it? Or, I mean, Game of Thrones was hugely popular, even if some people were unhappy with the end. But when it ended, did that kind of close the chapter for a while on adaptations? Huh. Will people kind of be like, oh, well, I've seen this before, but yeah, I want to see the next new thing. Yeah. Um, that's my my that's my one question. But I think HBO is certainly gonna throw its resources behind it. It's gonna get at least two seasons, probably three, yeah, at least. And uh so I hope it works out really well. One of my friends is working on it. I hope it works out. Yeah, I really do. I mean, uh, we, we got invited to help with the pilot for that didn't go forward, the long night. So we had a little involvement in that one. And we can see how complicated and difficult it is to get yeah. HBO to agree to do yeah. so. Yeah, why, I'm wondering, what was the holdup there? Why Why didn't they uh, go forward with The Long Night? You know, that I that's a mystery. I, we, we were invited to um, provide, help them develop some of the setting information mm-hmm. that, we, uh, that George had presented about that era. Yeah. Uh, to, to kind of come up with some things for them that they needed. And so we had a sense roughly of what they were planning to do with the show, at least in its pilot, but we don't really know if the execution was a problem. Mm. I've never spoken to George about it. I, I don't think he really quite knows. HBO makes decisions. It's very unusual for them to kind of pass on a pilot, though, I have to say. It's, yeah. it's usually they, like famously with Game of Thrones, they kind of reshot half of it, basically, uh-huh. uh, and gave them that chance. I think this, I think they probably just realized that, well, I have one more theory. Which has to do with season eight and its reception. Okay. <laughs> um, I have one theory there. Actually, I'll say that the Night King. Uh, maybe, maybe ending that threat so abruptly made the story of the uh, the first long night. Yeah, does the, anyone the, care about the Night King's backstory? <laughs> yeah, that like maybe maybe the way we dealt with it kind of made them realize like people don't aren't going to want to see mm. this i don't know that maybe i, I suspect there's a multitude of factors like that but maybe you know at some point the the straw that broke the camel's back happened and he said nah we'll pass um yeah do you think that george intends to give to flesh out the motives of the white walkers in a way that the show couldn't have or just decided not to do it yes Yes, I because so far the White so. Walkers to me are just like an avatar for winter. You know, they're just yeah. sort of this unthinking, monstrous force coming from the north. But, <laughs> but we, but it would be, man, it would be fascinating to learn a little bit about what, what are their motives? What's their culture like? You know, uh, well, okay, that I was gonna say, I, I was so you know, long ago I was on a panel or I was, I was attending a panel George was on, and he was talking about how. You know, he he was tired of stories where there's like a, a dark lord who's just who lives to be evil and they just want to do evil. They go evil sure. the next day. Well, and I, I kind of and I think I asked George or maybe somebody else in the room asked, well, what, but George, you know, what about the White Walkers? Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed and said, well, you, you'll see. Uh, I don't think it's a straightforward. But uh, and there's another thing is there's a mail from him where he, he was someone asked like, what what's the culture like? What is there? And George actually said interestingly he doesn't really see them as having culture, um, mm. which is an interesting one. But I, I think what, what we'll find out is, I don't think we'll find out 
the motives of the White Walkers per se, even though I mean they have language, they have yeah humor. Because in the very first chapter, one of them laughs. It's not not a nice laugh, but he found something funny. They have these swords and they have his armor. Someone must be making it. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that that is culture. I, I I don't know quite what George meant when he answered that he doesn't think they have culture. Like they have trappings of culture that we've seen. Right. But what I really think is what what's going to turn out is um, their existence has a lot to do with the children of the forest, and I think we will get more of that story. Yeah. To degree, I mean, in my mind, they're kind of like they—they they were kind of like uh, the the weapon that kind of decided to do its own thing. Um, mm, mm. So that kind of situation, right? I mean, there's yeah. So avatars, yes, but avatars for sort of this magical supracultural force or something like that. Yeah, huh. I think so. Something like that. It's it's it. Uh, it'll be interesting. I I think the sixth book, The Winds of Winter, uh, when 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 it arrives. Whatever that may be, uh-huh. I think we'll start getting more of a picture of that via uh, Brand's chapters. Yes, probably. yes, and Brand is in a unique position to kind of Very give a little bit of you know, sort almost like a godlike perspective on them. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, you know I, I didn't get into it, but I mean, I, the going further into my idea that Boris was initially a sort of other connected figure ah. um, in a feast for crows, uh, you've got. The introduction of uh, Euron Greyjoy and right. his whole story, and he's he's a very different character in the books and what the TV show apparently yes. yeah, has yeah. to do with him. And George, if I don't know if you followed, like when George read the or the Aaron chapter from The Winds of Winter, which is uh, let's just say is is a lot of very magical. Yeah, he's like happening. doing these like like massive human sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, now, I I initially took that as sort of this Lovecraftian creatures below the deep kind of thing. Yeah. But he does seem connected to sort of that northern magic green scene. Yeah. Stuff. So. Yeah, that and uh, we'll see. There was uh, think back to the first grand chapter after his fall. Uh huh. Where he dreams is the first time he sees a fear I go for the first time. He starts fall he starts going north north to the heart of winter and he almost falls onto these spears where all these other dreamers have died. Yes. That's um right. and the free eyed crow kind of gets him out of it. And I keep wondering, like, what if what if Urin was a green seer born, but he he had the same dream, he thought he could fly. Mm-hmm. But he got caught on those icy spears. Mm. Uh, He's very much a Darth Vader kind of character. Yeah, there's something of that to him. I, I it'll be really interesting to see where George goes with him. In I the think. sense uh, that, like, let's say he is a, a protege of Blood Raven or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's entirely possible. And then, and then went wrong, um, and went very, very wrong. Right. Uh, I mean, he's because I mean everything we see from him is. I mean, there's. He's just such a horrible person. I oh, think. he's yeah. It's like, it's kind of an amazing trick to think, you know, this grim dark world that George has created, that you could actually save the worst for last. You know, it's yeah. Like, how, how could anyone be worse than Ramsey Snow? And then yeah. of course it's like, oh no, Euron is absolutely worse than Ramsey Snow. No, I mean Ramsey Snow is. Um... A very small thinker, I think, compared to. Uh, <laughs> so it would be interesting to see. I think he also has a one thing is about him is is fans thought like they had him really figured out 
like after Clash of Kings, and I recall all the speculation fans were having on our forum back years ago about like what's going to happen to some swords, what's going to, and he had so many ideas that sounded like really good, like. Uh, Rob was George was going to borrow from the story, you know, King Alfred. The Rob was going to get defeated, but end up hiding in the swamps of Benek and leading a guerrilla campaign, and mm-hmm. and, and it's like it all made sense. Or uh, you know, Sansa was going to get married to Willis Tyrrell, and and Highgarden was going to throw itself into the story, and it all made sense. And then George Silverfords came out, and went, oh, and like so so much of it was just wrong and i mean and yeah. it wasn't wrong because it was like wishful thinking and people fought back no, it, it could have very pl- it could have plausibly worked for the story it's just yeah. that george brought it in a different direction and it, it was the story he wanted to tell so yeah and i mean it's like like think about like a clash of kings being and that's another piece of evidence for Euron, by the way being having these prophetic dreams uh when he's in winterfell he dreams of a king with the head of a wolf and a yeah. bloody feast yeah, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. on. Like so um th- there might be something to that, but urine is 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 uh says it'll be very interesting. I really am looking forward to what he does of it. My thanks as always to Elio and my thanks to you who have listened this far into the Electric Bukaloo project. And this is how season four 